Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Our guest today is particularly special to me. I've been a fan of hers since I first heard her work on Jim Henson's The Storyteller in 1989. And it was especially thrilling to watch as she collected an Academy Award for Emma in 1997, becoming the first woman to win in the scoring categories. She also was the first woman to win an Emmy for original music for her score for Bessie in 2015. She was Oscar nominated for her work in The Cider House Rules and Chocolat, and her other scores range from The Joy Luck Club to Mona Lisa Smile, The Vow, and more recently, A Dog's Purpose. Welcome, Rachel Portman. Thank you. Where are you speaking from, if I may ask? I'm speaking from West Sussex, which is about 50 miles sort of southwest of London. And are you spending more time there during this seemingly endless pandemic? Uh, Yes, I am. I have to say it's been a a lifesaver to be able to be out of London in the country, just to be able to go for walks, you know, outside and have space and be in nature. It's been great. Rachel, can you talk a little bit about music in your childhood? perhaps uh, when you started to be aware of music, when you picked up an instrument, and how important it was in your childhood. I didn't come from a particularly musical family. Well, my mum noticed that I, I was musical when I was sort of six, seven, and I'm very grateful to her because she noticed that and got me piano lessons, and I took to them and started working out themes off the television on the piano from a very young age. And so... I started taking violin lessons and then organ lessons and then I went to a school that had really good music and I was really lucky when I was um, 15 I went to a school and they had a composer who was in residence and pupils were allowed if they wrote music to take their compositions to him and so I started doing that and he looked at my compositions I was very young and and he encouraged me and so I wrote loads of sort of songs and piano pieces and pieces for the string orchestra And from that, I went on to to read music at university. And all the while, wanting to be a composer of concert music. I went to Oxford. I was really lucky to get in. And so I got there, and I was actually really disappointed because the professor I had didn't like the music I was writing because it was tuneful. And, you know, you weren't supposed to be writing tuneful music. You were supposed to be writing really academic music that most people can't bear to listen to. And so I thought, well, this isn't going to get me very far. So I sort of looked around for things to do. And then I I got really interested in the student theatre that was happening. And then there was a student film that was made had Hugh Grant in it. I was at university at the same time, same university as him, and he was in this film that a whole lot of students put together. And that was when I thought, this is what I want to do. I don't want to do theatre. It seemed to me at that time that theatre music was all about the bits of music where the scenes are being changed. And then (laughs) as it gets quicker during the run, they say, can you chop that music down? I thought, well, listen, this isn't very much fun. I'm going to do some music for the screen. That seems much more interesting. So that's how I got into it. And then, and then I had to break into it. And that was hard because I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't come from a family that was particularly into the arts or anything. I lived in the countryside, had no access to it at all. And actually, it was the wonderful filmmaker Alan Parker who helped me. He came and gave a talk about a film of his called Midnight Express. And afterwards, we all went to the pub. He talked to us students and stuff and... and I I asked him if I could send him a little audio cassette of my music, and I did. 
and he passed it on to a very well-known film producer called David Putnam, who made Chariots of Fire and The Killing Fields, and David Putnam gave me my first job. So I was incredibly lucky. Wow. And can you talk a little bit about what influences you've had through the years, perhaps musically, perhaps dramatically? Yeah, I think my influences have all been classical. And so I was really influenced by Maurice Ravel, um, whose music I love. I continue to be influenced by Bach. I studied Bach so much as a student, you know, having to write in the style of Bach. And even though no one could hear Bach in my music, it underpins everything. I think it underpins so much music that people write. In terms of, of film music influences, I think I've absorbed, obviously, a lot from watching film over the years, but I couldn't say any... I haven't studied. I've never studied film music. I've never studied a film composer. I think I've, I've developed very much my own style, and, and it's sort of a mishmash of everything I admire and look at from watching film over the years. So we'd like to talk about your work on a new Disney Plus movie, Godmothered. Why did you want to do this film? Well, I, I read the script, and... I'm a fan of Sharon Maguire's, the director's work, as I, I thought the two Bridget Jones films that she did were, were wonderful and very funny. I like the cast, and it seemed that you could have a lot of fun with music because of the, the magic spells that are in there. And it seemed like a really good antidote, actually, to coronavirus, to, to be working on something that was funny. And it is a very funny film. So Godmothered is about a fairy godmother in training, played by Jillian Bell, and her often misguided, sometimes calamitous attempts to create a happily ever after for a Boston news producer, played by Isla Fisher. Can you talk a little bit about your approach, what you felt the film needed musically? Yes. I mean, it was quite a journey to get to the right, the right tone of the film. And I think, you know, the director was very keen, Sharon was very keen that it would very the music would be very frilly and sort of overtly comedic and another thing that she really loves and something that I like too is is writing melodies so it was going to have a very melodic score so many film scores don't have sort of big melodies but this one she was very keen that it did which is great because sometimes comedies don't have that much room for real proper score and we decided together to do a score that sort of embraces the sort of traditional Disney scores, like the animations, like Snow White. And, you know, so I decided to put a female chorus in there that sing along, you know, with the strings. So it sounds very lush. But, but you know, it can always be a fine line about how to score for comedy in a way that is not telegraphing, hey, this is funny to everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm personally not that keen on writing music that is saying, hey, this is really funny. Because um, I, I think people are either find it funny or not. There are times when the score really demanded to point out the comedy, but, but often it was more sort of joyous than saying, this is funny, which I think allowed the comedy to come through. That's interesting. It seems like a kind of fine balance. I mean, you're saying it's joyful, but not necessarily on the nose comedically. That seems like a kind of a, of a fine balance to strike and maybe difficult. It is difficult. It's also difficult as a composer because I have my own take on what I would do and then I have to find out what the director wants and they have their own take on what they think is funny. And then, then there is the, the producers 
who also have another take. And we have to sort of meld all three together, really. As you say, it's a really fine balance. And sometimes my response to a direction will be to come up with something and then there'll be question marks. But they kind of, they all needed to hear what it was they were asking for and then they could make up their minds. So it was quite protracted, the, the writing of it, to get it right. So how long did you work on the score? Was this a matter of several months? Well, started working on it sort of in the second half of May and we finished in the middle of September. It sort of went longer than, than we thought. And is that because you were creating synthesizer mock-ups of sorts to, for them to listen to before you actually went in to record with the orchestra? Yes, in great detail and orchestration of exactly what the music was going to be. But that wasn't the reason why it was that long. The reason it was that long was because the schedule expanded. We did our first tranche of recordings in August, which was very interesting, you know, in the new uh, sort of coronavirus under the rules, that was fascinating. And then we went back and we did another tranche of recording in September for parts of the film that hadn't yet been locked in picture-wise. I, I want to come back to that, but let me back up a little bit and ask, is this your first film for Disney? It's not. I did Belle's Christmas, which was a sequel to Beauty and the Beast. Is there a Disney culture within which you have to operate? Or is it just more of a knowledge of the history of Disney music that maybe directs you in a certain uh, stylistic way? I don't know. I never know how to answer questions like that because I'm not a very... Um, um, I don't go about things in a sort of systematic way like that. It'll just be my take on what I think, you know, a Disney sound might be. And I just follow my intuition without really studying anything. My take on a big sort of lush score with lots of strings and female voices was basically what I delivered. I don't know if you could say it's exactly like Snow White, but it feels like it, it bears relation to it, but maybe in a modern way. Yes, and I must say that I loved all of the choir. It just felt not only holiday-oriented, but there was something magical about it. And of course, this is a kind of magical fantasy. Can you talk a little bit about the choral material, when you decided to use it and when it was perhaps less appropriate? Yes. Well, the choral element began to become part of the magic that was happening. So it's very much used as a tool in the score for when sort of, not just magic spells, but, but the whole realm of a fairy godmother coming into the real world in Boston. Whenever you hearkened back to that, it, it was a really good device to be able to use the choir in there to sort of plant Belle's character, the fairy godmother. So it, it was a really good device for me to marry the two because she does leave godmother land or the motherland as it was called and then she comes to modern day Boston and in her pink ball gown, which is completely out of place with absolutely everything else there. Poor thing, she doesn't take it off for the whole movie. She's wearing this pink <laughs> gown that gets dirtier and dirtier as the film goes on. Both the director and I thought, yeah, it'd be good to have some voices in there, but we didn't know how. And then, because there was quite a lot of time for the score to sort of mature into what it was going to be, it then became this character that was about magic and, you know, I could use it for anything relating to this other world. What about the Christmas aspect of it? When when composers do Christmas movies, I often think, is it a challenge to avoid Christmassy musical cliches? Well, 
Sleigh bells are really useful when it comes to doing anything Christmassy because you can actually, you know, you can you can kind of write anything that you like really and then put a few sleigh bells over it and, and everyone thinks, ah, Christmas. And so that's quite useful. And also we, we used a lot of Glock and a lot of Celeste in tinkling bells in this score too. I didn't see it as a particular sort of challenge. I just sort of like embrace it. People want to feel it, but you don't have to sort of knock them on the head with it by saying, hey, this is Christmas. I also have to ask you about the music for Gary the Raccoon. (laughs) He seems to have his own theme, his own rhythm, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Gary the Raccoon. It was interesting. They did a test screening and this little character came out with huge scores and he was only on screen for like about half a minute or a minute or something or maybe two minutes and they added a couple more scenes with him because he was loved so much. That theme was incredibly easy to write and it's just something that popped into my head and there were various incarnations of it where everybody got obsessed about what should the melody be played on the bassoon or should it be on the bass clarinet or was it too loud? (laughs) But the theme was universally loved immediately and just sort of kind of went with him. He's a great character to score because he's kind of lazy and I always knew that I wanted to write something in a sort of lower register. But it was interesting having a sort of kind of little swinging kind of um, rhythm to it really helped make Gary enjoyable. So there's a main theme, of course, for the film. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how difficult it was to come up with that and what it represents. I think two things. There was the, there was a theme that is the, the, the big sweeping theme that is the motherland theme that you don't actually hear very much. But I've woven it into almost every part of the score. It's only heard in its big sweeping statement, really, at the beginning and the end, and maybe one or two times in the middle. But then there's, most importantly, the godmother in training theme. That theme was really born out of who she was, what her character is. I mean, she's incredibly optimistic about everything and naive, but really sees the world in the best, you know, sort of happy light. And so that made it quite fun to to write her theme because you can't sit there in a bad mood for long (laughs) if you're having to write this music, which is endlessly sort of optimistic and happy. And and so I was sort of really trying to, to sort of describe her character in the main theme and that's why it's like that you also at certain points in the score have to interpolate bits of the sound of music and i wonder what that was like i guess well yes there's one there's one bit there's one piece of music which i am incredibly proud of um but and i'm I'm joking when i say that um because (laughs) it was over a montage where the godmother in training is persuading her charge, who she's hoping to give her her happily ever after, to go shopping and have a makeover, and she's trying to persuade her. And then the scene cuts to a sort of montage of Mac, the other main character, going actually going shopping, you know, like montages of sort of cutting of other things happening. And in one of those scenes, there's a clip of the sound of music in full swing, like one of the main bits of big orchestral music from it, one of the most famous bits. And then it comes out of it for a bit more montage. So I had this sort of 20-second blast of the score for The Sound of Music. And I think it was in some ridiculous key like D-flat major, which is completely wrong because surely it should be in C because of Do, a dear. <laughs> Do is C, C major. Anyway, so I had to write this piece of music that would 
using our themes, seamlessly flow into this up-tempo huge moment from The Sound of Music. The orchestrator, Alistair King, did a fabulous job altogether on this. So he finessed the orchestration so that one could go into the other. So this whole big piece sort of works seamlessly. But, you know, it's a challenge. I mean, that, that's like a, you know, grade eight challenge, I would say, to a musician <laughs> to be asked to do that. It's not easy. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Rachel Portman's score for the Disney Plus movie Godmothered. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. You know, I think this score is a great reminder of how timeless orchestral music can be in evoking emotion and feeling. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experience with putting music to film and why the traditional orchestra has played such an important role in your career. Gosh, do you know, I don't question why orchestral music works so well with emotion. It just does. For me, it's just, it's a natural form of expression. My form of expression is writing orchestrally and melodically as well. The, the two go together for me in storytelling. And I've always thought that writing music for films is really like telling stories and through music. And for me, the orchestra, it doesn't have to be the orchestra. It can be a piano, it can be a, a, a sort of a much smaller ensemble. But strings and full orchestra tell that, for me, in the best, richest way. As you pointed out earlier, there is such joy in this music. I kept writing down notes like warm, upbeat, fun, rich. And I thought to myself, I wonder if she had a great time while she was writing this, if it was actually a joy to come to work to write joyful music. It is a joy to write joyful music. It really is. I mean, it's demanding when time is short and, you know, you haven't got something quite how the director or the producers wanted it yet. But of course, it's a real joy and absolutely, you know, hugely joyful to record. One also might say that this is a kind of sentimental film, and I'm wondering how do you convey sentiment in music without going over the top or becoming sappy at some point? Is that also a kind of challenge? Yeah, I personally don't like sappy music, but again, it depends on what your definition of sappy music is. I don't want to write sentimental music. I'd always rather write something that's on the edge of happy-sad rather than completely happy. But you have to have real feelings in there. It has to be poignant, otherwise it doesn't work either. But I find, personally, if I sort of don't do what's expected, that helps. So it's not, you can't completely anticipate what the music is going to do next. I think that stops sentimentality too, too much, I think. Let's talk about the recording. I was concerned uh, if this needed to be recorded during the pandemic, what were the circumstances and special challenges of recording in this complicated time? Luckily, I mean, the, the huge amount of work has been done in the UK, in London, to make it safe to record film scores. We recorded part of the score at Air Studios and part at Abbey Road. And in both places, there were incredibly strict rules about how long we could record for, how many people we could get into the room, and everyone was set apart. Which is interesting, because, you know, if you're a string player, 
You'd normally sit in desks of two, and everybody was spread out, and it had different results. When we were at Abbey Road, we could only put down half the strings, and then we had to put the other half down at a separate session because the, the studio wasn't big enough to have everybody at the same time. So we put a lot of it down meticulously in layers, and I know that's something that lots of composers do anyway, but it was time-consuming, so it took extra days. You know, several of the players and, and the singers were really moved to be back together again because it had been so long, because we were one of the, the first scoring films to sort of go back. I mean, like a lot of things, it's very challenging at this time, and a lot of fun has been taken away <laughs> from lots of things, but, you know, with coronavirus. But then I felt so incredibly fortunate that we could do this. I met the director for the first time at the recording session, and she had to stay three metres away all the way through. But that was wow. the first time I met her, which wow. just shows you I didn't meet anybody on the project at all. I just stayed at home and did the whole thing. And when you think what technology can do now, it's unbelievable. If this had happened 10 years ago, it would have been very different. Yeah, yeah. And next to impossible, probably, to record together. Yeah. The film has an important message to convey regarding the meaning of happily ever after and how we should view that in contemporary terms, especially as it concerns Disney heroines, I think. What's your feeling about that? I'm very interested in happily ever after, actually. I think the message is that how one can discover how to be happy doesn't have to be, it's not set in stone. I don't believe that there's ever there's such a thing as happily ever after, like this film doesn't really, but that if you look at what's around you and you can see what makes you happy and you open your heart to it, then there is an awful lot of happiness to be had. So, I mean, this film is really about somebody coming out of a tunnel of sadness and realizing that she's got a lot of love and she is happy. She, she can find happiness through that and she can value what she has that's special instead of being worried and afraid the whole time as opposed to a magic formula, you know, of the fairy godmother to bring happiness and, and it comes with a ball gown and a pumpkin and a carriage. Speaking of heroines, referring to you, you were the first woman to receive an Oscar for composing an original score for film for Emma back in 97. Looking back on that experience, were you aware of how groundbreaking it was? Oh, I don't think so. No, I, I really, I didn't, I, I didn't think about it. It just happened, and I was incredibly grateful, and I couldn't believe how lucky I was to, to get to go to the Oscars, let alone come back with, with an Oscar. I mean, that was just extraordinary. I bring it up because, of course, Anne Dudley won after you for Full Monty, and now Hilder Gunna Daughter has won a third for Joker. What's your general feeling about progress for women composers in this field? I think it's incredibly slow. I think it, it, it's happening, but it's taking a very long time. I know that there are wonderful film composers, female film composers, writing brilliant stuff. And it's just taking time. I find it extraordinary that there's not more parity, but I think there will be. There are a lot of students coming through very fine film masters programs now. They're educated, they know what they're doing, they're educated in film music. I just think it's just taking time for that to embed itself and it will be soon. But I am surprised it's taken so long. 
One of the things about Godmothered is that almost every important creative position in the film, from director to writer to producer to composer, is filled by a woman. And that seems like a little bit of progress to me. Yes, definitely. Most definitely. I'd like to turn to another project of yours this year, uh, to be honest, a favorite of mine, which is your album, Ask the River. I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about it and what prompted it and how you went about it. Thank you for asking. Um, I, I'm passionately interested in nature and the environment and in the world that we live on and the earth. And I'm interested in if the earth could speak or if we listened, what, what we would hear and what the earth would say. And through that, that process, that thought process of mine, and this particular album, Ask the River, is a very personal project and sort of really began as a series of pieces that, that I wrote as a response to being immersed in nature. So that's why it's called Ask the River. It's in, in sort of Tell the River, it's Ask the River. It's a collection of pieces inspired by listening, I guess, more than anything. And, well, they're pieces that are primarily for piano and a few have cello and violin as well. And they're very simple and people can make of them what they like. And you're playing the piano. I'm playing the piano, yes. And obviously that's an important choice too because it, it literally, it quite literally is your voice in a way. It really is, yeah. And, and that's not something I've done before. I never play on sessions even though I play the piano. I'm not particularly interested in performing and it only occurred to me fairly late on in the process that it had to be me that was going to record these pieces for the album because it was, it was my interpretation that, that sort of kind of matters because it's, it's my voice. What I find interesting about your career is that you are not simply a film composer. You've worked in classical music, you've worked in opera, you've worked in the theater. Was that always your intent? Um, I'm not sure it always was. I think think in my 20s, I was fixated on film. But before my 20s, I was, I, you know, I'd never thought about writing music for film, but, but... I knew I wanted to be a composer, and it was only when I was about 22 that I thought that I discovered film, and I thought, ah, that's what I really want to do. And then when I had my own children, I remember then thinking, gosh, you know, I'd really like to write for The Voice, and don't get much chance in... And I'd written a few songs, sort of, as a student, and then I thought, I'd really like to write an opera that you could take a child to that wouldn't put a child off opera. And that's how writing the opera of The Little Prince came about always think in life it's it's good to do more than one thing is it more satisfying to write original works away from the screen and the need for collaborating with others to be honest i like both it is it, it of course it's deeply satisfying to be the author a hundred percent of your own work and you know to be the king of it really basically <laughs> it's also incredibly hard it's very hard because it comes it comes from what you know I had to I had to sort of dig deep to find out what needed to come forth whereas if I'm working on a film it's like someone's put their hand out and said write this can you describe this so I'm, I'm very used to really pinpointing a specific emotion and rhythm and momentum but it's hugely satisfying to write something away from the screen What are you working on now? Is there anything either in film or perhaps in the concert world or television that you're doing that we can look forward to? Yes, I'm doing a film based on Julia Child, a feature documentary. 
which is going to come out next year, and it's called Julia. The filmmakers, Betsy West and Julie Cohen, again, I haven't met them. I've only seen them on Zoom. But they made the Oscar-nominated RBG a few years ago, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg brilliant documentary feature. So I am doing that and spending a lot of time looking at food uh, on this film. (laughs) I'm always interested in what one has to do for a documentary score that's different for a dramatic narrative. Is it different? Well, I thought it would be different, but it really isn't. This is just like a drama. Actually, I mean, the, the music is, it's not just a sort of a level piece of music that goes under a scene with talking heads. The music ebbs and flows and has to build and have different themes. It is just like crafting a feature film. Well, we can certainly look forward to that. Godmothered is airing now on Disney+. And I can just say thank you, Rachel, for giving us your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you can rate it, because that really helps others find the series. Check out Godmothered on Disney+, and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. <laughs>